My job has strict deadlines with tight turnarounds, and sometimes requires me to work long hours. Since I don't like work to interrupt my evenings and weekends, I typically elect to take any overtime in the early mornings. One day, because of a large looming project, I decided it was necessary to start the workday at 5am, even earlier than I prefer. I woke up, got dressed, and went to my car. It wouldn't start. But it was too early to call anyone and too urgent to wait. I decided to walk. It was still dark, businesses were closed, the streets were wet and abandoned. I walked in complete isolation. When I got to my destination, the office was equally desolate. I began my work with limited efficiency, as my movements were not frequent or animated enough to keep the automated lights on. And there I was for three hours, typing to no one in silence and darkness, as though I was the only person in the world, completely alone. Scramble Transmissions is a podcast about anthology television and a human condition. These series vary in release dates and ratings, so the episodes discussed may contain nudity, sexual content, graphic violence, and outdated cultural references. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. were a popular television format in the 1950s, and companies were not shy about having their names attached to entire series. Shows like The Motorola Television Hour, Betty Crocker Star Matinee, Colgate Theater, and Goodyear Television Playhouse proved that many companies were excited about the returns television could provide. But with strict sponsor oversight came the inevitable clash with creatives behind the shows. From small changes like removing the line, got a match, because the sponsor sold lighters, to larger edits like cutting the Chrysler building from the New York skyline because the Ford Motor Company was paying the bills, one screenwriter was beginning to feel the frustration of making constant concessions to networks and sponsors. His name was Rod Serling, and although he was already well-known in the television industry, he would begin to be known as the angry young man of Hollywood. Serling was active in politics and wanted to begin writing more about controversial subject matter. After seeing the lack of remorse and accountability following the murder of Emmett Till, Serling created a teleplay for the United States Steel Hour, which largely mirrored the horrific event. However, the script faced a number of revisions, including changing the Till-inspired character into a Jewish pawnbroker, and then changing him again to simply a foreigner in an undefined town. Despite scrubbing the episode of the more challenging elements, it was poorly received and was the target of backlash regarding the nature of the content. In the late 50s, Serling began considering a new approach. If social commentary were concealed in a more palatable package, such as sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, he could have more autonomy and less resistance in exploring the human experience, as well as themes such as racism and war. By 1959, despite an initial failed pitch, The Twilight Zone was born. Today we're unscrambling the pilot episode of The Twilight Zone, titled Where Is Everybody?, which premiered on October 2, 1959. It was written by Rod Serling, directed by Robert Stevens, and stars Earl Holliman. Where is everybody begins with a man walking down a road. He enters a town that appears to be recently abandoned. Shops are open, appliances are on, and water is running. But there's no one to be found. As he wanders through the streets, his paranoia grows, insanity wanes. Who is this man? And where is everyone gone? We're discussing the episode with my guest Justin. He has long been in my peripheral as a friend of friends, multiple different friends, in fact. However, for the last few years, I've had the pleasure of meeting and engaging with Justin directly through parties and other group activities. He's one of those people you can talk to openly and at length about a number of subjects from pop culture to philosophy. He also has one of the biggest hearts of anyone I know. That's why I thought he'd be perfect for the first episode of Scrambled Transmissions. Now, I, I feel like you're... 
being a guest on this episode of the uh, the podcast is perfect for a few reasons. Of course, it is the first episode of the podcast, and we're talking about the very first episode of Twilight Zone, but uh, you've also never seen an episode of Twilight Zone. Is that right? Yeah, I've always been, like, really interested in the Twilight Zone, um, but I just, it, you know, it's always like, in the back of science fiction. Like, you can, you know it has, like, it, its hands in a bunch of stuff, or, like, its, it's, its influence is felt, and... I just don't watch a lot of old stuff, though, which might sound really weird, but like I just don't gravitate towards that style generally. Um, but I was, but having an excuse to go to it that wasn't my own was actually really cool. So I, I'm very appreciative that you invited me on this. So let me ask you this before we get into the the actual uh, episode. I, I guess my question was: are, are there any other anthology series that you are more familiar with or have watched with any sort of regularity? I actually see, yeah, similar to the Twilight Zone thing, I also have not watched any of Black Mirror. I've heard a lot about it, but I, I don't know. I'm weird about sci-fi. I have a very love-hate relationship with a lot of sci-fi stuff where it's like, it's my favorite or I'm just like not into it at all. Like it has trouble grabbing my attention. So I think I'm more picky about whether I start to watch it or not. I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. And uh, I did watch a lot of Are You Afraid of the Dark as a kid. That show scared me so much when I was younger. And I feel like if I watched it now, I would think it was the funniest thing ever. Well, let's get into uh, Twilight Zone. Uh, where is everybody? Uh, what were your initial thoughts of it? The initial thoughts I had, I love the narrator. The narrator is great. I feel like I've seen that uh, imitated a lot in like, especially like WB cartoons from my childhood and stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. the place is here. The time is now. But they'd have it. I don't know if, if that was like an Animaniacs joke or something. You know, like, I feel like I've, I've seen it made fun of a lot. And it's kind of like cool to be like, oh, it's this thing. This is the thing they're like poking fun at. And, like, you can feel the effects of Twilight Zone in a lot of, not even just science fiction, but just, like, entertainment at large, I feel like. Like, it had such an impact on people. The whole the whole narration in the beginning was just, like, I felt like I knew it, even though I didn't know it. But, yeah, and later on in, in the Twilight Zone, of course, you see, like, Rod Serling, who is the narrator. He actually comes out, and he's in the black suit and tie. Uh, you know, and, and does like an introduction in person. And, and that, again, is that same type of thing where it's just kind of been parodied and reenacted so many times throughout pop culture that you almost know it without knowing it. it is Rod Serling, um, did he do a bunch of other stuff or is this kind of his claim to fame? Because the name sounds so familiar. Yeah, he, I mean, this was obviously his big. He, he did another anthology series called Night Gallery which uh, I think is maybe more in the horror vein, and it came a, several years later. I know he's also, I, I, he might have also done some writing as well. I don't know if short stories or not. I probably should have been more researched uh, for this. But, yeah, how um, dare you not have a complete Wikipedia article <laughs> that you wrote yourself? <laughs> right. So I, I think he, because he wrote a lot of the, um, I think probably most of the Twilight Zone episodes. So I, I think he oh, was. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, right, right off the bat, that that narration sets such a good tone for like, because at first I was like, ah, old show, uh, I don't know, like, but then it like set this really, the music and the narration, like the weird narration and everything, like, I was like, okay, I'm in, like immediately, even for a show from 1959, which is usually like not my bag of media stuff I turn back to, like, a lot, especially like a lot of movies from back then, I'm like, eh, but this is like, I don't know, it's so like, you even today, it still has like this very unique feel to it which i thought was really cool yeah and i think even though obviously with you know black and white uh you know some of the more dated uh filming techniques you know there there's some of those things that make it feel very old but at the same time anytime i watch twilight zone i i'll usually find something that i i think is still very affecting something that kind of captures captures me in some some way and that I have seen this episode before, but just watching it again recently for the the podcast, I even found myself kind of finding new things to be like, man, that's really cool the way they set some of these these things up. Oh yeah, like the 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 only thing I thought was old feeling about it was like obviously it has the four by three aspect ratio ratio with like some some of the shots are grainy, but some of them still hold up really good, and I'm sure there is remastering done at either some point or multiple points of this getting released onto 
I watched mine on uh, Hulu, and uh, yeah, I was like, this actually like this doesn't look like bad. Like you know, you can tell it's old, but it doesn't look like horrible, and it's still serviceable today, which is kind of fascinating in a weird way when you think of how old some of those techniques are that they're using, and you're like, wow, this actually like there's some shots that I was like, that's like just a good that's a good shot, you know, like that's like a good that's a good looking well lit interesting shot that tells a story or whatever, you know, it's not just like I don't know it's not like some other old stuff where you're like ah they just needed to get it done and it's you know whatever they just yeah and i think that's one thing that really separates television from movies a lot is you can you can really see where television has a much more kind of lazier (laughs) approach to to cinematography so sometimes it's just like just set the camera up film some people doing this stuff and then you know don't worry about the rest but i i do feel like sometimes not at all times but twilight zone does try to blend or you know merge that yeah just a, a i little think bit. this episode especially there's some like there's some like these like wide shots sparse with cool music that would seem like it was orchestrated just for that and it's like it's just cool it's like a good dramatic shot that i feel like you don't always get from television or whatever but you get from like film a lot of times and it's like interesting score plus like cool cinematography does a lot there were two specific shots i i really really liked that i feel like we're doing something very interesting in both of them that i didn't i don't think i necessarily picked up on when i've seen this this episode before but i guess we should backtrack and explain maybe the plot a little bit at this point this man has come into town there's nobody in the town at all it seems like the town is lived in uh there's jukeboxes playing there's restaurants and businesses are all open yeah there, there seems to be like essences of humanity left behind but no right, actual he can't humans. find a, a human like... anywhere and so at kind of a moment of desperation he even hears a telephone ring he runs out to the middle of this this square or this town square to answer the phone of course nobody's on the other end and he begins to look around the town square just from the central location of the the telephone booth and just that panning shot around the entire square i i think is really really good especially in terms of him looking at the world through this confined space which kind of plays into the the twist a little bit yes yeah and he the way they did that shot actually really like made me uneasy because he's in you know it's a telephone booth from for older listeners you know it's like a glass box essentially and he's in the middle of like the town square and he's just like looking completely around as though he's being watched and it's like i was expecting there to be like a a random person just staring at him and i was like i'm gonna scream right now if like i don't know it's like it's like builds up the the whole episode is just like a tension build like the phone ringing no one's there but he's like trying to call somebody and he's looking around and he's like the door is closed on him somehow and he's like freaking out kind of as he's stuck in this like glass box where he feels like super exposed even though there's no one there which is a very a very interesting feeling to have i feel like even though he's in this big open town is he's really starting to feel claustrophobic at some point just just in the in the idea of him being the only one there and you know you you, st- you see that i mean it's it's played out uh through the the phone booth but then it, it comes up again which is another great shot i love when he's in the the police station and he goes into the, the jail cells and you can see there's a one of the jail cells has a, a running faucet and there's like uh somebody was clearly in the middle of shaving there's like a a shaving cream brush that's still got the cream on it and everything and as he's and the water's like drizzling out of it yeah exactly and as he's doing that you just see the shadow of the prison cell door slowly start to close behind him yes yeah also another thing i took a note on i was like man that is unset like shadow and like practical shadow work it's not like cgi it's like the way they they probably just had like a fishing line on it or whatever and like slowly close but it's like it works you're like oh i don't want to be trapped in prison in a humanless thing you know what i mean like and then he's like bust the door and is like no <laughs> like he's like because the, the the telephone door thing like closes on him too which is interesting there's like this whole like i thought that that was kind of an interesting recurring theme like he's like you know the, basically getting trapped somewhere which yeah I thought he's was like cool. very worried that this that he's getting closed in in this uh, humanless world very effective i i thought so yeah and then uh, you know and then by the end of it they've built that tension so much where you're almost expecting to see humans at, at any point and he's he goes to the movie theater yes i i this yeah this part i thought was like very 
this was the most like uh like 50s-esque part of this of this i feel like was the whole like movie theater experience (laughs) a movie starts playing and so he looks up to the projection booth, starts screaming, you know, to find out who's in there. And he runs back out to the lobby to to run up to the projection booth. And there's a giant mirror on the wall and he runs directly into the mirror. He, he, he rams just like right into it, like full speed. And it's somehow only his head hits it, which I think is <laughs> scary but also kind of hilarious just like the comedy of errors at the end i thought was like very hokey compared to the rest of it where he's just like yeah he he, the the other thing i wanted to mention for that part is he runs in and he goes hey everybody i'm in the air force (laughs) like he just yells it out and i'm like what a weird if people were in there what a weird thing to yell at a bunch of people uh, something i wanted to bring up this this actor, I didn't look up their name or anything, but this actor is so good. Like he's so he's doing all this uh, like alone acting where he has to react to things with no other actors, and he's just like, oh, he's just he's so I I like I kept writing over and over again. Like I, I was like, I just love watching this guy like be weird, like in and uh, and like talk to himself, and he's like charming and like kind of funny and like has like a good like charisma to him, and I was just like. I, I agree. He, he really that's the tough thing it. about anything where somebody's having to act completely alone is it's like exposition can happen one of two ways. It's either 100% visual where you kind of have to piece it together yourself or the actor has to talk to themselves to deliver to, you know, explain exposition, which can be pretty cheesy at times if, if they're explain if they're talking to themselves out loud. But, you know, sometimes it's like, well, yeah, we obviously know that's the case. They didn't need need to go have somebody explicitly state that word for word but i i don't i don't think we ever crossed that line on this episode no i i think they balance that where he he does talk a bit so it's not just a silent film basically but they let some silence ring out to make you like uncomfortable in the same step where they use like the music kind of as a cue sometimes which i thought it's very it's a very good balance because you can see a 50s thing like getting out of like you know way too cheesy really quickly if not handled correctly and i feel like it got a little cheesy towards the end but like but it kind of was also deservedly so i don't know it's like it didn't go too much it it, i think it did i think it hit it, it uh stuck the landing Uh, any other notes or oh boy so many honestly the i'll just i'll take it from the beginning like we said he he's in that cafe that's the first place he goes into i love that he has the audacity to just go grab a coffee cup and start pouring it and he's just yelling cash customer customer out front customer and he's just like i was like you are the worst person ever like and he's just like talking to yelling and just like being like someone give me some food right and he's he's like he's in the kitchen he goes he hops the counter goes back to the kitchen to very quickly by the way (laughs) yeah does not he does not wait very long to hop the counter and start serving himself (laughs) and he goes back to the kitchen pours himself a coffee and while he's pouring it he's screaming the order to nobody there he's like saying eggs and hash browns or eggs and toast and hash browns yeah he's like yeah he's screaming his order over and over again (laughs) and yelling customer out front (laughs) pulls out pulls out his cash and everything like just He's like, I have two dollars and eighty-five cents, and I'm hungry. I think is literally. <laughs> <laughs> and then he he leaves the cafe, and what I think was very funny is it very clearly says "closed" on the door that he leaves. But there was jazz music playing, which you know, if a business is playing music loudly, that means you are allowed to just break into it. <laughs> if the doors are unlocked and the the jukebox is is jamming, then you might as well go in and order some eggs and hash browns. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I loved, I loved, I don't know if they did it intentionally or what, but when he walks out and it says closed, I was like, oh, that's, that's amazing that he like, I don't know. Cause it's like, cause at first you're like, well, maybe it makes you double like but go, but well, maybe he is just like being weird or whatever. But then when he goes into town and it's like liter- a literal like ghost town, which I think is really cool. It's like not, a, it doesn't seem like a set of some kind, if that makes sense. It seems like they managed to empty out a small town square somewhere, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, that's a really good point. Cause I, I know, especially in, in 50s 
uh, in 60s television. It's a lot of set pieces and studios and, and things like that. But that really did feel like a very open, actual uh, town square that he was he was in. The prison is the only one that really felt like a set, like a set set, if that makes sense. Like everything else felt very grounded. And maybe that prison was real, you know, it's like I... I haven't personally been inside of a, a jail in, in, a, in a small town. No, yeah, because when he runs by the bars, they kind of shake real weird, which is, you know, probably made out of cardboard or foam or something like that. But the rest of it has, like, it's very grounded, which I think helps with the 50s-ness of it. Like, it helps make it feel much more real, if that makes sense. Or, like, you know, it, it doesn't age it as much if they were trying to throw some goofy effects and set work in there. And I like when he, uh, I wrote about the mannequin woman scene where he approaches what he thinks is a woman and says, I think everyone in the town is asleep or something, which I thought was very funny just to be like, (laughs) he's just trying to justify anything where it's like, I guess everyone fell asleep, like, which is a very interesting, like, I don't know. He talks about at that moment, he said, I just found myself on the road walking. Maybe I have amnesia. I don't know. I love how he's just like saying stuff. Cause I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I would do that if I was completely alone. I'd be like, I don't know. Like you start kind of mumbling to yourself more or like narrating. I think it would be normal for a person to talk to themselves. Um, how much detail they, they start. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe not quite as much detail. <laughs> But I love how he hits on the mannequin lady when he figures out it's a mannequin. He opens the door and she falls out. And it's not really played for horror. He's like, he's like, oh, hello, miss, or something like that. And he's like, like I've always had a thing you. for the... Yeah, he's like, don't tell anybody. I've always had a thing for the quiet types or whatever. And I was like, this is so... <laughs> like, I don't know. It's like weirdly funny for a 50s... Because normally like 50s humor, you're like, oh, whatever. But this this guy, he like just sells it so well that you're like... I would watch like a movie of him just like being weird, wandering around an empty town. Because <laughs> he's just like, he's really interesting to listen to. And it was at this... Oh, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, and he's in a jumpsuit. I don't know if we really talked about that either. Yes, but yeah. He's not in, like, normal, everyday attire either, which kind of adds to the mystery of it a little bit. But yeah, he looks all... like a pilot or a mechanic or something like that. Like, it's just a like a denim jumpsuit, basically. <laughs> right. But, it, like I said, it adds to the, the mystery of the plot, but also kind of to the goofiness, too. One thing I really loved about the mannequin scene was that the mannequin was in a mannequin delivery truck. Uh, a couple yes, ab- that is very funny. <laughs> like- a couple things about it. First, that the mannequin was fully dressed and sitting in the passenger seat of the mannequin delivery truck. But also that mannequin delivery trucks at some point existed is very, very funny to me. And I'm, I'm sure that is... The mannequin economy was strong <laughs> right. in the late 50s. Like... I'm I'm sure at the peak of department stores and everything that that was probably a thing that existed, but something about the idea of someone making a business of delivering mannequins to to businesses is so pure, and I I love everything about it. <laughs> yeah, like the just the and the store full of mannequins that he. <laughs> right. and it's not like I said. Normally, you think of the mannequin horror stuff. And this is just like, I don't know, there's just mannequin. And it is weird, though, because it is the only people, quote unquote, that he sees in this town is the mannequins, like the figures of mannequins or whatever. So at first you're like, oh, is that a lady? Like they even obscure it just enough at first to where I was like, I don't know, it kind of looks like a mannequin, maybe it's just like a lady sitting still. And like, then of course it is, but it was it was very interesting that, you know, it's like the first person he sees is a mannequin and he still kind of treats them like a person, which is also is quite funny and wholesome. Like, And he, and he, takes, he takes care to pick her up and put her back in the, the truck. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I liked that. I was like, he's, a, he's he seems like a cool, nice guy. Like he's like, oh, this might be someone's business. Like obviously it's their business, so it's like he's gonna like he's not gonna just leave it on the road. He's a nice guy. <laughs> like, and we talked about after that is the phone ring part, and then he does the the jail door thing right after that. So it's like even more tension. And then they cut it a little bit with him going to the Sunday shop, like to get an ice cream sundae that is also like a bookstore kind of. Yeah. Or something like there was like book uh the spinning wire racks that had a bunch of books on them which i thought was kind of weird like off to the side though it was like ice cream parlor and then off to the side is i guess some, i guess we'll sell few... some books here <laughs> like, right. i like though how he goes anybody want a sunday and then leaps over the counter and immediately start like he's already like i know i'm alone here so 
He's he's fully resigned to look. No one's helping me. I'm going to eat some ice cream. And as a side note, he puts a whole lot of uh, chocolate syrup. I think it's on an that, that ice cream. Yeah, he's like whatever. I'm <laughs> living it up. It's like one tiny scoop of ice cream in one of those old timey ice cream bowls. But then he's just like heaping the the chocolate syrup on. Well, it's like it. sometimes you want your you want your sugar and cream with coffee. And sometimes like, but I loved how he looks into the scene, into the mirror and he goes, I'm sorry, old buddy, but I don't recollect the name. I don't just the way he talks to himself. I was like, there's a lot of like weird, almost like memeable stuff that you can make out of this episode. I feel like there's like a lot of just weird lines that are like still very funny and like could be used in weird circumstances. Yeah. And I, this wasn't, I don't think necessarily a memeable line, but one of my least favorite parts in the episode was in the ice cream shop when he's talking to himself in the mirror and he he quotes a christmas carol like word for word but to me it, it seemed a little bit forced like maybe not it just wasn't really necessary for her to him to explain why he thinks he's having problems is because of digestive issues which he, you know he the part he quotes from is in the christmas carol when jacob marley first visits scrooge and scrooge says you could be an undigested piece of cheese, blah, yada, yada, yada. There's more of gravy than grave about you or whatever. So it doesn't exactly fit the situation that he's in at all. So I, I don't know why they felt like that was. Like, yeah, it's like there is no like there is no like lesson learning happening for him, obviously, except that he might have a slight, you know, attraction to mannequins that he hadn't realized before. Or something well, they're like quiet, that. you know, like, when they're quiet. Yeah, like, it's the quiet type. I love the quiet type. But yeah, that that I like the uh, he goes to the bookshop and he starts spinning all the book things, which like kind of makes it uncomfortable because he starts like getting, you know, I don't know. It's just kind of like weird looking when he's like surrounded by all these spinning bookshelves and he's just kind of standing there. I was like, that's kind of an interesting little tidbit. And then he looks in the, the one of the books is the last man on Earth. And there's a but there's a bunch of them. And he's like spinning it and looking at them all. And he like picks it up and he's like, oh, no, like you know, he's like what am I doing here? And I think he starts talking about the bombs at that point, or was that in the theater? I can't remember. I I guess it was the theater when he's outside of the theater and he's looking at the advertisements for, uh, I guess the movie was battle him. And that's, that's where he realizes he was in the air force, you know, but yeah, it's almost like a misdirection because, you know, he's looking, he sees the book that says last man on earth. He's in the air force, you know, and it, it almost is like suggesting to us that, there may it might have been some sort of weird post-apocalyptic thing that was happening which is you know we'll find out and we'll discuss but that's not at all what, what yeah the I, I like how was, he even so. says like the buildings aren't destroyed though he's like there's and there's no there's no like bodies or anything like if it was a bomb it wouldn't just make a bunch of people randomly disappear or whatever you know what i mean it would be like there would be destruction I, and i like how he just naturally is like wait no that's stupid like he like he like debunks his own theory immediately which i like instead of like what if it's true it's like no obviously it's not like it's like <laughs> yeah there's not enough evidence there that the world has been destroyed him running out of the theater with his arms flailing around like after he'd rammed his head into the glass and done the like the way he runs out of the theater and trips over the only bicycle in a very large area (laughs) was extremely funny to me where it's like we need him to like trip over something so it's just a bike like on the sidewalk somehow he beelines straight to the bike and like topples over it he's not even like trying to grab it to ride away he just like falls over it and then like and then he's like looks and sees the optometry eye and he starts like you know he's like he's like ah he's like getting really he's like i need to get out of here and he starts pressing the what is it the street walk which crossing ap- thing apparently causes it to completely malfunction cuz it's flashing walk and wait at the same time all the street lights are in the uh the 1950s and 60s don't press that button too many times cuz you will you'll mess it up <laughs> Yeah, I was like, what good is that street? Like, that's like, that's good for nobody if it says wait and cross at the same time. But I also like that he chose to be like, I need help. Someone help me. And he goes to like the crosswalk thing and starts pushing yeah. it over. <laughs> like, you know, like, because if I was in trouble, the first thing I would do is walk up to like an old crosswalk and start pressing the button constantly. But yeah, I, I, I really liked uh, the twist that's revealed if you want to 
if you want to go into some description yeah, so about it. Basically what happens is it as he's pushing that as he's pushing that button and screaming somebody help me, it suddenly cuts to one of those kind of smoky projection rooms that you see sometimes where like old old time film companies are watching dailies or whatever. Uh you know, but it's it's full of military personnel and uh men in, in uniform that are watching him on a screen. But he's not outside. He's in a room, and he's got wires attached to him. So you can tell he's subject to some sort of experimentation or uh, something along those lines. And so as he's screaming for help, they, the Army generals or Air Force generals or whoever they are uh, decide to go, go help him. And you see then that he's in a giant warehouse, but in a small, confined, basically I- isolation chamber. Yeah, like a cement box, basically, like that he's or a cube rather that he's just like. Yep, and and he's pushing a button that I think is like a release button or something, screaming "Help me!" Uh, and you know that obviously signals back to the street pole that he's pushing that button in, and then he's also like punching a clock. Uh, which re- references back to a broken clock he had seen in the first diner he went into, you know, and he's, there's all these kind of visual cl- cues that basically he had this kind of manufactured reality that he was experiencing from, from his isolation chamber. So they, they pull him out and they're, they're kind of explaining what had happened, that he was prepping essentially for a uh, moon. And this, this was filmed pre moon landing. Um, but he was. Yeah, I was curious about that because I couldn't remember the timelines for Moon. Yeah, landing. it was it was only a couple years before, if that. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, he's preparing for a, a trip to the moon, but he had to, I guess, go through these isolation tests first. And they said he was in there for 488 hours, um, essentially two and a half weeks, uh, and it eventually drove him drove him insane and that is the, that's kind of the twist is he was just in a, in a box the whole time and just uh imagining the uh the empty town um which i i think was a, a really really great twist especially when if you're sitting there the entire time trying to figure out what happened to the people in the town um that's really the biggest misdirect is because you know the, the town doesn't even exist you know so yeah it's like no actually it's not just the people gone being weird. Everything is weird for even being <laughs> right, here. <laughs> right. And I, I think really, and this is pretty common to a lot of Twilight Zone episodes, is there will kind of be these monologues at the end explaining that. What was the matter with me, Doc? Just off my rocker, huh? Just a kind of a nightmare that your mind manufactured for you. You see, we can feed the stomach with concentrates. We can supply microfilm for reading, recreation. Even movies of the sort. We can pump oxygen in and waste material out. But there's one thing we can't simulate. That's a very basic need. Man's hunger for companionship. The barrier of loneliness. That's one thing we haven't licked yet. I I think, you know, even though it's very exposition heavy and kind of trying to tie everything together in that one line, I think it's a really really well-written kind of closing line to the episode. No, it was very powerful. Um, They mentioned a couple things that I thought was really interesting. And it was just like, I I loved that. Like, basically we can make you survive, but we can't actually make you thrive. We can't simulate man's hunger for companionship, which I thought was very awesome. And, you know, they even say too, that they gave him microfiche and movies in there too. So it wasn't even like he didn't have exposure to any sort of entertainment or anything like that you know it it was making the point he had everything that he needed except one critical thing that you know everybody needs exactly and and that's like that whole theme definitely i was like taking a couple notes after it Isolation. It's a term that's taken on different weight in the last 12 months. We spent the majority of 2020 being asked to separate ourselves from our co-workers, friends, family, and loved ones. While many kicked against social distancing initiatives, others were more committed to their own safety, as well as to the safety of those around them. But how does prolonged isolation affect us? What are the long-term social and mental effects of being alone? And are there ways to combat it while continuing to protect our health in a pandemic? 
Justin has maintained a strict lockdown in his personal life, so I wanted to get his thoughts on these questions and see how he has handled a full year of barely leaving his house. Justin, can you tell me a little bit about maybe how some of that has affected you and kind of where you're at? Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, I'm high risk for complications due to COVID-19, and so is my father. Uh, We are both diabetic. Uh, runs in the family and my you know my father is also in his 60s so he's not like a a young guy and I'm in an overweight category that adds to my I don't know what you call it like high riskedness <laughs> like uh, <laughs> my yeah my general it just adds to my general risk and so pretty much right away we started isolating for the most part we know people in Italy from my dad's work so we had been hearing about it from them and then once it started kind of coming over here they were like you know these like take this thing super seriously because you know italy got hit extremely hard like you know like they they did the proper lockdowns after that but at first they didn't and they had like really horrid issues and stuff and so we were like okay this is what we're doing now (laughs) and so we just kind of like you think it's you know you kind of have this weird like oh maybe next month and maybe next month and you know and at some point though i just did get and I, and my family did too i live with my parents right now while uh going to school and at some point you i think we just were like okay this is just like i hate the term the new normal but at some point we were like okay this is our new normal who knows how long that is gonna be but this is what we have to adjust to and a lot of that was extremely isolating because especially there's almost a case you can make for some people where it's like oh yeah they can go outside their bubble a little bit they can do this and that but like me being high risk and my dad whom i live with being high risk it was hard to justify adventures outside of the bubble if that uh vocabulary makes sense uh, no it, it it does and and that was one of the reasons i was really interested in, in talking to you about it because i know that for a large part there are a lot of people that have managed to kind of continue their lives one way or the other like you said they're they're stepping outside of the bubble some of them they have to go to work they don't really have a, a choice of it other people are just out of pure ignorance are going out and, yeah you know, yeah some partying. people don't have a choice and some people are making that choice whether they should or not <laughs> The true isolation isn't that like that steep ramp up. It's more of just this slow tension, kind of like the beginning of the episode almost like, but it doesn't ever like, I'm never like running out of my house, throwing everything over. Like I need to hang out with someone in person right now. And like, you know, freaking out. And I think that's because I have adjusted pretty decently well. And the internet is wondrous during these times. I I think of the old pandemic, the Spanish influenza like, did they just, just, like, listen to their radio all day? Like, you know, like, I'm just like, you know, because I'm thinking of the wealth of tools at our disposal now and how lucky we are to have all those things. Now we at least have, like, video chatting or, like, we're Skyping and it's not, like, a weird thing where it's going to cost a billion dollars on a phone bill or whatever. The communication avenues are so much greater now. And I think that's, like, a legitimately a, a mental health lifesaver. I was talking to someone and I was like, if a video chat with somebody gives you 70% of that feeling of getting to see them in person, isn't that better than 0%? And for me, it's like, because the option is either like not doing that or like, you know, like not seeing anybody at all and being like actually isolated or having these like, not, I wouldn't even call them like half steps, you know, but like, it's not, it's not quite what you want, but you're almost there. Like you can still have a good conversation with somebody and that's awesome. I, I think it's actually a little comforting to, to hear that you worry about the people that are strictly locked down and how that isolation would affect you. But I really do think it's, you know, in some regards, our access to television and, you know, internet is a little like that, you know, it doesn't necessarily replace human interaction but what what can at least serve as you know a a temporary surrogate is electronic communication and it still keeps us in touch yeah i remember there's some study that i read i can't remember what it was in reference to but i was it, it, it was at the beginning of the pandemic when i was just doing my own like mental health research of like what should i do to make sure i'm doing okay and like to make sure other people maybe i can help other people do okay so they don't take unnecessary risks or something like if someone were to ask me or whatever. And I remember reading something that said, if you're like, if you can see someone's like shoulders and above, you get like a lot out of it versus like just their face or other stuff. There's something about like seeing the like bot part of the body with the face. 
it starts being able to fulfill much more of that need than just like a phone call, for example. And I thought that was like interesting just because I'm like physically isolated. I'm not mentally or emotionally isolated, which I think is a big thing. Like, and I think that was always, that's the thing that was sometimes distressing with people where they're like, I'm just so isolated and blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to be like, call someone i don't know you know like you're just like like you don't gotta see them in person to emote with them necessarily and you know unless you you need those avenues for like if you have any kind of disability of any kind like that's a completely different thing and maybe you don't have internet and there's other issues but i feel like there's a lot of ways you can that you can make it work and there was a part of me that was like a little frustrated sometimes i was like come on y'all we can do this like we can we can do this for a year at that point it was like i was like maybe a month or something but it felt like you know at that it felt like at that point though even people were like it's been two weeks and it's too much or whatever and i was just like it feels like you guys just don't want to try and i understand that it's easier to do what's normal to us than to adjust i i don't know the first couple months were really rough for me and now i've kind of hit like a weird feeling pretty good about where i am with like isolation kind of thing it's like me and my family kind of just got in a groove and like you know we have zoom chats with other family members so it's like oh we actually talked to my aunt and uncle like way more than we had in any previous year because we used to just go see them once a year and that was it but now it's like oh we talked to them like every other week so we've kind of actually been more interconnected in some ways even if we're not physically interconnected if that makes sense because we're not just waiting for the next big physical hangout we're making an effort to emotionally check in a lot more and i think that's really important and like in in the show that's kind of the thing though right is like he had all these other things taken care of but there was no emotional check-in from another human being Yeah, if I was completely alone and I couldn't get online and I couldn't do all these other things, I don't, I don't know. I might be doing some of that. I might be talking to a mannequin and hanging out. Like, well, it's it's the whole castaway thing too, where he created, you know, Wilson the volleyball as kind of a companion. So, do you think, especially for people in in our generation or younger generation, that is a tough thing to reach out and ask for sincere help on something? Oh, absolutely. I feel like we've created this environment where we have such curated lives from social media that I I feel like we have reached a a place where it's it's difficult to just reach out and say, hey, buddy, I really am hurting right now or I'm really having trouble or struggling right now. Yeah, it's something I think about a lot, weirdly, especially as a a future uh, mental health professional. I think about that stuff a ton, like how much... How much is social media hurting versus helping? Because you can see a lot of times it really helps. But then also there's the, you know, fear of missing out stuff and all kinds of stuff, especially during the pandemic being isolated. It can be hard to be like, put it out here that I'm not feeling so great or not doing so great. I I struggle with both. I have trouble talking about even like personal accomplishments because I'm worried it comes across as like braggadocious or like I'm like, like I'm, I'm tooting my own horn a little bit too much. But then I also, on the other end, sometimes I feel like I don't want to be too exposing too much of myself online. Sometimes I think it's good to check in who your followers are and who you're following and what do you want to reveal to them or not reveal to them maybe maybe you make a new account that's just like your close friends so you can just post like hey here's just my normal day-to-day stuff and not just have like a public account for anyone to see who maybe you don't want to you don't want everyone to know how you're feeling but yeah it's something i i go back and forth on all the time but yeah there are people who only talk about those accomplishments and nothing else and i think that's where you run into the trouble where it feels like it's only allowed to be a positivity party here and you're not allowed to talk about anything except the best things in your life and i think there's something to talking about those but also it doesn't even have to be 50 50 but sometimes it feels like when you go to someone's profile it's it's just a hundred percent here's this dope thing i did or here's this thing i think is cool but it's never them as a person Sometimes I'll get on Facebook and I'll just be like, why am I here? I feel like I'm not getting any interpersonal anything out of this. I'm just like peeking in on people's accomplishments, which is cool, but it's not, I feel like we substitute that for social interactions and it's not that. It's like you're looking through a one-way mirror at somebody doing something. Well, and I think with 
with Twitter too, because that's I, I'm not on Facebook as much, but I am on Twitter, and I, I think the opposite or not opposite, but a different problem with that is that they're not so much focused on accomplishments and look look how great my life is. It's more of look how funny I can be or look at how controversial this take can be. To me, that's even maybe less genuine because that's not even really a personal truth about yourself. Yeah, it's like who can meme the best or who can shock the best. And that has its place for certain, but I feel like it's stretching what is social about social media. There's this weird utopian vision I have of like social media and the good it could do because it's so wide reaching. It could be such like an awesome platform to talk about problems and like interpersonal stuff and keep actually connected and not just like half connected thing where it's like, well, I kind of know what they're doing in their life, which I think is a nice thing because if you see them again in like an actual interpersonal thing. But I think sometimes we substitute that where we're like, oh, I didn't go out or I didn't call my friend up. I just went on their Facebook page and like looked at what they're doing. And it's like, that's not that's not a social connection, really. That's just you're peering in on what they're up to, but that's not, that's not the same as even just like a 10 minute phone call. It's, I feel like there's a lot of like weird expectations into social stuff that should be stripped apart where it's like, we should, it should be okay to call your friend for five minutes instead of like texting off and on for six hours or whatever, like (laughs) where it's like, you don't really get a conversation going ever. It's just kind of like, oh, we could have resolved this in five minutes and had like more time in our day instead. You know, I have a close friend that, you know, when we were younger in high school and college, we would occasionally call each other and actually talk through things for a long, long period of time, you know, and maybe something is lost a little bit when you're not, you know, just having a a phone conversation with someone. When you text, you have the opportunity to edit. And sometimes maybe you actually wanted to talk about something else and someone can kind of pick up on that when you're you hear each other's voice. And then suddenly you're having a talk about that instead. And maybe that's what you really wanted to talk about in the first place. Whereas in a text, like you might sit, like you might start texting, Hey, I've been feeling really lonely lately. And then you erase it, you know, or it's just like, if someone goes, how are you doing in text form? I think sometimes it's like, oh, I'm good. Whereas like in person, it's harder to just say, Oh, I'm good. Whenever you don't really feel like it. Cause they can pick up on the emotion behind your voice of like, no, you're not, you're clearly not doing okay, pal. Like, and silence is much different over the phone than it is over text. You know, you, you almost expect there to be quiet delays in text messages. And whenever you're on the phone with someone and you're talking to them, if you did just say, oh, I'm fine, you know, you're leaving a lot on the table there uh, where it could just be quiet and you guys feel more obligated to fill that silence and continue speaking. Whereas with a text message, you can say, how are you? Fine. And then the conversation could be over, you know? Yeah. And there's no, there's no like subtext. Like you're not, you don't get the emotion of that. Like, it's like how people get in like weird arguments over email or text because someone made a joke, but you can't read that they're doing it in a jokey voice. And like, if that makes sense, whereas like if it was in person, it wouldn't even be an issue And that can apply to all kinds of stuff, you know, like anger, annoyance, sadness, joy, and and other stuff. Imagine if you you messaged me about something you did that you thought was really cool, and I just said, good for you. (laughs) Right, yeah. But in person, I would say, that's so good for you, or so, like, you know, like, you would clearly be able to tell. But if I just said, good for you, with, like, no exclamation point or smiley face or anything... You might be like, ah, it seems like they're kind of like short on that response. I, I know I've had that, whereas in person, I've never felt like that. And I feel like that's what all good conversations are is they start out, you start out with small talk and then you end up talking about the, who, like your life and what the, the meaning of everything is to you and your friends and what's real to you. I think sometimes we miss that in like purely text stuff. I, I do think that as a society, we could we could use some more of that, at least listening to each other. Oh, absolutely. Active listening is, I think, one of the most important skills that like really isn't taught. How to lend an ear thoughtfully and empathetically. But like it, it's something that we should just all inherently be able to do as human beings. We are communal creatures who need each other to survive. Like... There, there was an old statistic I read, and I don't know if it's actually true, so I'm, I'm sorry if I'm spreading false information, but it was something about how, like, 
that old stereotype of like the strong mountain man who's a survivalist only lived to be like 40 something years old on average or something like that because like they're completely isolated and like there's a lot of studies that bear that out where like one of the biggest key indicators for like a long happy life is your ability to maintain social connections in a weird way your your mental wellness does play so much into it that's like that's part of like going back to the episode to COVID-19 to all that stuff that is such a huge thing is like adjust in a time when you're not able to do those things that you were normally doing is critical and a big part of that is like making sure you're an active listener if a friend reaches out and says hey I'm having a tough time instead of you going like "Ah, I don't have time for this and you may very well not sometimes but a lot of times we do and we just don't make time for it (laughs) like you know like but being able to be like a true active listener with those around you like no matter the opinions and like really take the time to listen to people and find out what's really going on it just helps with every i think it helps with like problem solving i think it helps build stronger bonds between us as people i think it's just a really underrated thing and i think it's something that i've been trying to you know reinforce even just with myself a little bit more because sometimes i'm not a particular sometimes i just wait to talk but sometimes you're missing on some really important stuff when you're just waiting for your turn to to go on a rant on Adam's podcast. Was there anything you wanted to plug or? Oh yes, I uh, I work on a podcast called Pretending to Be People. Um, you can find that by googling Pretending to Be People podcast or looking up Pretending to Be People in your your pod app of choice. Um, it is a what do you call it? An actual play, role-playing podcast. We do all kinds of stuff on Patreon. We do some streamy stuff. We have like a cool little Discord for folks to hang out in. We're a very, I don't know, we're a we're a good group of buds. It's kind of like X-Files adjacent, but kind of in that Call of Cthulhu vein of like, of it's like these agents trying to figure out stuff, but it's very goofy also. It's like we have directed a weird horror movie and then we hired a bunch of comedic actors to come play in it. Someone said it is a true detective, but stupid. (laughs) (laughs) But they said it in a positive manner. (laughs) Scrambled Transmissions is written and hosted by Adam Timish with additional production support from Blake Walker and Ox Audio. Very special thanks to our guest Justin for watching and discussing the episode, as well as talking about his own experience. Until next time, watch something weird. <laughs>